Today is June the 1st, 2022. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key and my colleague is Joe King. Do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how Facebook, Google, Amazon, and other big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, prn.live, that's L-I-V-E, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. on prn.live, streaming on the Internet, and podcasts of the programs available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email addressed to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Joe King, Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy until we meet again, same time, same station, next week. Google Fiber told to drop speed and reliability claims after Charter's challenge. Google Fiber agreed to alter its advertisements after the National Advertising Division determined a number of its speed claims were unsupported, including the assertion that its service can provide faster download speeds than you get with traditional cable. The decision followed a challenge from cable player Charter Communications. In addition to the aforementioned claim, the National Advertising Division also ruled against Google's claim that it offers up to 77 times faster uploads and up to 12 times faster downloads. Additionally, it recommended Google alter or drop statements that it offers speeds which are faster in every direction and that everything you do goes much faster. The National Advertising Division review of Google Fiber's ads also tackled assertions that its service is more reliable than cable. It found Google's claims that it has way fewer points of failure than cable internet and fewer outages than cable internet to be unsubstantiated. Google said it disagrees with the aspects of the NAD's ruling, but it will respect its recommendations. The National Advertising Division concluded that the quantified speed claims reasonably convey the message that the speed differences between two comparable metrics and speed tiers when it is, in fact, comparing Google's fiber top potential speed of 1 gigabits per second and 2 gigabits per second tiers to the median speeds of charter and other cable providers' lower tiers. The National Advertising Division also noted that up-to claims can convey a misleading message to consumers where there is an apples-to-orange comparison. The National Advertising Division found that consumers may reasonably expect the advertisers up to claims to reference the same speed tier, using the same metric in which the consumer's experience will be impacted by factors such as weather, equipment, and congestion. They may not expect that up to language relates to a comparison of median speeds 
to top speeds across different tiers of speeds. Google, you got caught. Intentional or not, email providers have a political bias problem. Not all spam is created equal. A recently published academic study, which analyzed more than 300,000 political emails sent during the 2020 election, found evidence of a political bias in how the nation's most popular email inbox providers filter messages. Google's Gmail was 50% more likely to designate emails from Republicans as spam than messages from Democrats. And on the flip side, both Microsoft Outlook and Yahoo were significantly more likely to filter out messages from Democrats than from Republicans. Error-prone filtering from the most popular email service in the country may have a major impact on elections in the United States. Online fundraising relies primarily on email solicitations. Beyond fundraising, campaigns are also hampered in the ability to combat disinformation, share accurate information about voting, and encourage supporters to go to the polls. Google said that correlation is not evidence of a causation and that political affiliation has absolutely no bearing on mail classifications in Gmail. Microsoft, likewise, chalks the discrepancy up to technology that isn't perfect. The rules and algorithms are also unknown, and in this case for some good reasons. If any rules were made public, they would be immediately circumvented. But because these companies do not make their spam filtering algorithms available for scrutiny, we cannot know for certain whether or not some political factors, intentionally or otherwise, contribute to an email's classification. But we can agree that if a voter opts in to receive email messages from a political candidate or party, they should be able to receive them. Inbox providers have these spam filtering measures in place to protect their users from unsolicited messages, scams, and other malicious emails. Federal law, however, exempts political messages from the definition of spam. The mere fact that political emails are routinely delivered to spam folders is troubling, given the priority we place on First Amendment protections. The United States Postal Service has a solution to the political bias of spam filtering algorithms. Campaign-related postal mail from candidates and political parties receives priority and expediter handling with a special TAG 57, also known as a red tag, because of its color, attached to it as it moves through the system. Post office employees know the red tag mail should not be delayed. A similar system of identification already exists for email, but has yet to be applied to political campaigns. There are a handful of open standards built on DNS records that can verify the identity of email senders and the ownership of the domain they are using. Email inbox providers such as Google, Microsoft, and Yahoo rely on these records to authenticate the messages their users receive and protect them from cyber scams like phishing and spoofing. Email marketers know that authentication with DNS records help improve the likelihood that their messages make us pass spam filters and into inboxes. To address the challenges of political bias in email filtering, 
we need to create a new type of authentication that identifies messages from candidates and parties to email inbox providers. This will ensure that subscribers see the messages that they are signing up for and that political communications are not treated the same way as commercial messages. Platforms like Facebook and Google already have a system in place that verifies the identities of authorized representatives for political advertising purposes. Eligible campaigns would update their DNS records and inbox providers would ensure that emails from the authenticated domains would reach the inbox of the intended recipients. Email is foundational to the internet and is an important means for communicating with others. Our media landscape is more fragmented than ever and local news is on the decline. There should not be a political bias in email spam filtering. According to the original estimate by industry analyst firm Trendforce, all OEMs combined would ship around 1.39 billion smartphone units in the year 2022. Samsung had projected the manufacture of more than 330 million smartphones in 2022, and Apple originally planned the production of 240 million smartphones in 2022. For all these reasons, it's not surprising that manufacturers are pulling back on manufacturing. A new report from South Korea's Mail's Business News has the world's leading smartphone maker, Samsung ramping production down by 30 million units for 2022. The news comes as sales are further hampered by the conflict in Ukraine. In March, the company followed fellow tech giants Microsoft and Apple by suspending sales in Russia. Apple, too, has been feeling the pain. Recent Bloomberg reports noted that the iPhone maker is throttling plans to manufacture an additional 20 million phones in 2022. Instead, its numbers are reportedly going to remain flat as the same as 2021. Those reports follow several quarters of iPhone sales that had managed to buck many of the industry's macro trends. But the company might be coming back down to earth, even with the imminent arrival of the iPhone 14. Now Apple is planning to keep iPhone production roughly flat in 2022, compared to 2021. This is a conservative stance as the year turns increasingly challenging for the smartphone industry. Apple is asking suppliers to assemble roughly 220 million iPhones, about the same as last year, according to people familiar with its projections, who ask not to be named as they're not public. Market forecasts have hovered closer to 240 million units, driven by the expected major update to the iPhone in the fall. But the mobile industry has gotten off to a difficult start to the year, and production estimates are down across the board. The industry was headed for a slowdown well before COVID entered the picture. The glory days of expanding markets and biannual upgrades are seemingly at an end, and things have only been exasperated by two years of financial hardships and supply chain constraints. It's a perfect storm of industry and global factors that have gotten us to this place. It's not panic time for the larger manufacturers. They'll almost certainly come out of the dip unscathed, but there are broader questions that remain about the industry going forward. 
Is this just a low following a decade of explosive smartphone sales? Inflation, which is soaring across the world, is generating fierce headwinds for many tech companies. High-flying startups with record valuations, huge hiring goals, and ambitious expansion plans are now announcing hiring slowdowns, freezes, and in some cases, widespread layoffs. Founders and investors are preparing for what looks like an economic downturn, and perhaps even a recession. The downturn would likely most affect international companies, asset-heavy companies, low-margin companies, and other companies with high burn and long time to revenue. It's not just early-stage startups that are feeling the burn. Big tech companies, including Meta, which is Facebook, Salesforce, and Netflix, have also recently announced hiring freezes or layoffs in the midst of cost-cutting pressure and rising inflation coupled with a looming beer market and rising interest rates. Industry stalwarts like Microsoft, upstart social media companies like Snap, and crypto newbies like Coinbase haven't announced layoffs, but they've all slowed hiring after poor quarterly results. The S&P 500, dominated by tech stocks, has lost over 20% of its value so far this year. There are speculative posts about layoffs like one called Layoff safe companies that are still hiring. No company is layoff safe. You need to make yourself layoff safe. What you do is you get some seniority in and work hard to make yourself irreplaceable. Is any bright spot? The tech industry may be under siege, but American job seekers overall still have substantial bargaining power. What we're seeing in one sector, though a substantial one, stands in stark contrast to the rest of the economy with U.S. employers adding 428,000 jobs in April, more than expected, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics data. Average hourly wages are still also continuing to grow, but still below the pace of inflation, which at the end of April was 8.3%. Tech companies that have laid off employees in 2022 range from the small scale to, in the worst cases, mass layoffs, conducted via impersonal video messages that have left employees gutted and the industry questioning, are Zoom layoffs ever okay? Let me tell you, when you're being laid off, it's not okay. Tech layoffs are now at their highest point since January 2021, and they've come from both the giants and startups. There have been over 60 tech companies with layoffs in the last month or so. Cybersecurity firm Lacework laid off 20% of its workforce. On-demand grocery app Gorillas cut half of its corporate staff, or about 300 employees around the world. Just weeks after laying off more than 80 employees at its San Jose headquarters, PayPal let go of additional employees in risk management and operations in Chicago, Nebraska, and Arizona. The CEO of payments company Bolt told employees that the company is undergoing several structural changes and cut more than 100 staff members. Online used car dealer Carvana laid off 2,500 employees, many of them over Zoom. The laid-off employees mostly served in operational roles and made up about 12% of the company's workforce. Carvana said the decision was due to macroeconomic factors which have pushed automotive retail into recession. Several employees at 
collaboration to startup morale was let go and according to Lincoln Post from affected employees. The exact number of employees laid off was not reported. Productivity app ClickUp laid off 7% of its staff in an unexpected move. CEO Zeb Evans told Protocol the goal was to ensure ClickUp's profitability and efficiency in the future, saying it puts the company in a position to accelerate our timeline to profitability and ultimately achieve our goal of going public. Buy now, pay later company, Klarna, that's K-L-A-R-N-A, laid off 10% of its workforce as it has reportedly been looking for more funding, potentially at a low valuation. Klarna has about 5,000 employees. Celebrity video greetings startup Cameo laid off 87 staff members. Trading app Robinhood laid off roughly 9% of its full-time workforce. The decision affected roughly 340 Robinhood employees. Netflix first laid off a number of journalists working for the company's entertainment site, Tudum, in late April. Weeks later, the company laid off an additional 150 employees. Though major companies haven't had to make drastic cuts, several are slowing down or freezing hiring, citing disappointing earnings and a battered tech sector, but continue to reassure staff that job cuts aren't imminent. A lot of these hiring slowdowns, like at Microsoft, are contained to specific departments rather than company-wide. Microsoft slowed hiring for its Windows, Office, and Teams software groups. NVIDIA will slow hiring later this year. Lyft is slow hiring to focus on critical open roles after struggling to meet earnings estimates. Snap announced that it would hit the brakes on hiring through the end of the year. Uber is cutting back on hiring and other costs to address a seismic shift in the market. Coinbase, COO, announced that the company slow hiring in a note to employees. Salesforce slowed hiring and cut back on other expenses, including corporate travel and some upcoming off-sites. Meta, that's his Facebook, is perhaps the biggest company to have announced a hiring freeze for certain roles as it works to control spending amid an industry-wide downturn. CEO Parag Agrawal announced in a memo that it would freeze hiring and pullback spending at Twitter. Agrawal said the company made these decisions after struggling to meet audience and revenue growth goals, though the company has faced some internal turmoil amidst Elon Musk's takeover deal. It's also been reported that Twitter has even started rescinding job offers. And they tell us that inflation is good and inflation is transitory right now. Well, I try to keep open-minded of that. Higher price tags have become a regular part of life lately for most consumers. Verizon recently announced upcoming fee changes for its wireless customers. These changes will impact both consumer and business customers. If you're used to paying a set amount for your bill each month, you'll want to be aware of these upcoming changes so you can budget accordingly. These are the price changes that will begin in June. Consumer accounts will see their monthly administrative fees increase from $1.95 per voice line to $3.30 per voice line during the June billing cycle. This will also impact smartwatch and tablet devices, but will not impact hotspots. Many business accounts will see a new monthly economic adjustment 
fee of $2.20 per line for smartphones or data lines. Basic service plans will include an additional $0.98 fee per line beginning on June the 16th of this year. Since these fees are charged per line, customers with multiple lines will see the biggest price difference. What does this mean for the Verizon customers? If the above changes apply to you, make sure you have room in your budget for a slightly higher wireless bill. While these Verizon fee changes may not result in a lot of extra money being taken out of your bank account, extra fees can add up and when you consider all the other price increases you've been paying lately. Cell phone bills aren't the only cost that has increased lately. Many consumers feel the financial strain as they fill up at the gas pump and get food and household essentials at the grocery store. Here are some tips to trim the cost of your phone bill. If you are a Verizon customer, these fee increases are inevitable. Still, you may be able to make some minor changes to lower the total cost of your wireless phone bill. Review plan options. Your service plan may not be the best option for your needs now. Compare plans to see if a cheaper service plan will work for your phone usage habits. Share a plan with someone else. Have a solo cell phone plan can be pricey. Consider other service providers. You may be able to save money and get a better plan by switching wireless service providers. If you're frustrated with recent price increases, you're not alone. Join the club. When it comes to the semiconductor shortage, there are many parts to it, and there is no one universal solution on what the fix is. But Intel's innovative solution to the substrate shortage is one of the workarounds. Intel has a factory called Vietnam Assembly and Tests, VNAT. The Intel's VNAT factory implemented a critical change last year, an innovative approach to substrate processing. It enabled Intel to produce millions of additional products while competitors were squeezed by supply constraints. VNAT was responsible for helping Intel better meet customer demand during a difficult period. Semiconductor chips referred to as integrated circuits, or ICs, or microchips are made from pure elements, typically silicon or germanium or compounds such as gallium arsenide. The chip is an electric circuit with many components such as transistors and wiring formed on a semiconductor wafer. The layout of the components is patterned on a photo mask by computer and projected onto a semiconductor wafer in the manufacturing processes. Based on design specifications, the semiconductor chips are then packaged onto a substrate. The key change made at VNAT was to set aside some factory floor space to attach all the required capacitors to chip substrate material. An investment was made to buy and train on machinery required for this preparatory but essential step to making finished computer chips. Previously, chip substrates arrive at Intel's chip-making factory with capacitors placed ready on one side of the supplier, and Intel would then place the capacitors on the other side and use the substrate for the processor. Different products require different capacitors in different locations on the substrate. Thus, Intel would have to order a quantity of substrate for chips A, 
B, C, and so on, and it wouldn't be able to chop and change between substrates if it ran out of one or the other. A semiconductor substrate is a supporting material upon which or within which the elements of a semiconductor device are fabricated or attached. Substrates will become an increasingly important value-added component of the semiconductor packaging business. The demand for higher-performance semiconductors in smaller packages will continue to spur the development of advanced substrates that can support the advancement in circuit design and fabrication. VNAT geared up to take in the substrate that hadn't been processed by the supplier, with no capacitors in place. This reduced a significant processing burden from suppliers, making it easier for Intel to acquire substrates and be flexible with the stock it took in. By bringing this capability in-house, they are able to complete chip assembly more than 80% faster, while at the same time freeing up the substrate suppliers who are constrained on capacity. Intel's in-house processing of both sides of the substrates began in May of last year. By doing all the capacity placements on substrates in-house was that it enabled millions of additional units amid supply constraints. Intel's success in its approach contrasts with the difficulties facing chip companies like AMD and NVIDIA, which have less vertically integrated businesses. AMD and NVIDIA don't have chip-making factories to reconfigure if they see any opportunities for efficiency gains or cost savings. However, they also don't worry about owning hugely expensive to build and maintain production facilities. During the last year, with pandemic-related shortages, Intel reportedly gained $2 billion of revenue thanks to its its level of business integration and the new in-house substrate processing. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. Addressing more rapid-fire complaints about IT. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we talk about you, the IT environment, at your office, and more. And this week, I've got more rapid-fire complaints about your IT department. And yes, these come in all the time, and I'm... I, I, I'm going to address these complaints as best I can. One of the biggest complaints I've heard uh, over the years is I'm not an IT. I'm not. An, I'm sorry. I'm not an administrator of my own computer. This is my own computer. I want to be able to do it with it what I want. Well, okay. First, it's not your computer. It's your company's computer. But yes, there are times where you should be an administrator for your computer or at least have administrative access, even though you might have to enter in your password or you might have to log out and log back in. It does empower you and it takes some of the pressure off of IT. Okay, so hey, if I'm doing this, IT, I don't have to bother IT for some of the more mundane items. I myself, I have gone through, and you can do this. You can request that you have access, administrator access to your computer. Now, you have to justify it. You have to explain why. And you have to be able to explain that you're going to be responsible about this. You know, most of the people who uh, who I've had come to me, oh, I want to be an administrator of my computer. 
I have quizzed them down. Why do you want to do it? What are your skills? What are your plans? What aren't you going to do? Yes, I ask that. What aren't you going to do? So in my case, what did I ask for? Well, I said, hey, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm an IT professional of 30 years. I know what I'm doing. I will keep the computer safe. I want to install software as I see fit. Yes, I'm going to you know, follow the legalities of all of this. I want to be able to configure my computer for my needs. Yes, I'm going to be safe. Yes, I'm going to be doing the right thing. So what do you do? You, you ask. That's fine. Another concern people have, hey, I'm not allowed to use my company computer for personal use. Can you use your company car for personal use? I mean, maybe you can. But can you use the big, huge, um, I don't know, there's a press out in the factory and it punches out big, huge pieces of metal. Can you use that for your own personal use? Probably not. Can you use the forklift for your own personal use? Probably not. Can you use the uh, you know the company big rigs for your own personal use? Hey, I'm moving across country. Can we um can we move my furniture? No. Like I know it seems simple, and yes, there are certain areas where companies get flexible. But I'm going to tell you, if you're using a company computer, there's activity that's being monitored on that computer most likely they know what's going on with your computer they know if you are utilizing it for making money on the side they know if you are going to bad websites they know a number of different things do you really want your entire it staff to know your life and report that to your manager to various management in the company, oh, to each other, to chuckle about it. Hey, can you believe this guy? Can you believe what he was doing online last night? Yeah, you don't want that. Look, please, let that one go. There are certain situations where, yes, you might be able to use it for a little bit of personal use, but it's a work item, and you want to keep it as a work item. You don't want them to go through and know everything that's about you. The next one, the lack of response from the IT department. I will tell you, uh, I have been in a variety of different uh, roles over the years. One of the things I did for the longest time was I was the sole in-house guy for all of the IT stuff. And I, I did my best to make sure that people understood I'm not being unresponsive. I just have to prioritize. And sometimes priority is far more important. Uh, look, John, I, I understand that you want, to, you want me to chase after this particular minor annoyance. And you admit it's a minor annoyance. But then I also have to get out this report for Jerry. And I have to install this software for Mark. And I have to make sure that all of the systems are staying up and running. And Nicole has this request that is, uh, you know, I have to research this. I, I, get, I get you're important. I, I get you, you have this desire to get rid of this problem. And we'll deal with it at some point. And yes, I make sure that I prioritize. And some of those priorities are based on how long somebody has been waiting for this. 
And I try to, me personally, I try to express this to people so they understand. I'm giving you an update. I, you know, I'm not forgetting about you. And I think that one of the things that we as people forget is that nerds, one of the one of the big things about nerds is they're also socially awkward and sometimes they forget some of the niceties and they forget to update you. And yes, there's a lot on their plate. One of the best ways to handle this is just to say, I don't mean to nag, but I do want to check in. I had this one issue that I'd like to get addressed. Can, can you give me an idea of when I might expect help on this? And establish why it's important. Establish what is, you know, what it is, why it's important, when you might expect response. And then understand that, yes, you want to be flexible and and maybe you want, and maybe they'll say it'll be done in two weeks. It might take four. It's just life. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. DuckDuckGo browser allows Microsoft trackers. While performing a security audit of the DuckDuckGo privacy browser, security researcher Zach Edwards discovered that while the browser blocks Google and Facebook trackers, it allowed Microsoft trackers to continue running. Further tests show that DuckDuckGo allowed trackers related to the Bing.com and LinkedIn.com domains while blocking all other trackers. DuckDuckGo CEO and founder Gabriel Weinberg confirmed that their browser intentionally allows Microsoft trackers third-party sites due to a search syndication agreement with Redmond. Weinberg has made it clear that this restriction is only in their browser and does not affect the DuckDuckGo search engine. While DuckDuckGo has been transparent regarding the advertisement partnership with Microsoft, it is not clear why they did not disclose the allowing of Microsoft trackers until a security researcher discovered it. Hey, tracking is tracking. The market for wood-derived products stood at $631 billion in 2021, and despite all the efforts of environmentalists, to prevent deforestation activities, it is expected to cross the mark of $900 billion by 2026. Every year, humans cut down about 15 billion trees. This massive deforestation is the root cause of many climate change-driven problems our world is facing at the moment. So how do we save our forests? A team of researchers at MIT claims that lab-grown timber can be produced in any shape and size. So, for example, if you need a new wooden chair, use the researcher's technique and you can create it in a lab without cutting a single tree. The researchers at MIT performed an experiment that gave stem cell-like properties to normal plant cells. They extracted cells from the leaves of a flowering plant called common zinnia and then stored the same in a liquid medium for a couple of days. In the next step, the researchers treated the plant cells with a gel-based medium enriched with nutrients and hormones. After some time, the cells gave rise to new plant cells. The researchers also noticed that by changing the hormonal concentration in the gel medium, they could control the physical 
and mechanical properties of the newly grown cells. During experiments, plant material that contained high hormone concentration turned stiff. In the human body, you have hormones that determine your cells develop and how certain traits emerge. In the same way, by changing the hormone concentrations in the nutrient broth, the plant cells respond differently. Just by manipulating these tiny chemical quantities, we can elicit pretty drastic changes in terms of the physical outcomes, says lead researcher Ashley Beckett, explaining the role of hormones in plant cell growth. Moreover, Beckett, with her team, were also able to 3D print custom-designed structures out of the cell's culture in the gel using a 3D bioprinting method. For three months, the lab-printed plant material was incubated in the dark, and the results were shocking. Not only did the lab wood manage to survive, but also grow at a rate twice that of a regular tree. Growing furniture in a lab is also waste-free. An estimate suggests that the current furniture-making process leads to the loss of about 30% of the total wood as waste. Interestingly, the 3D bioprinting technique suggested by the researchers at MIT does not generate any waste and can be employed to produce plant material of any shape and size. The idea is that you can grow these plant materials in exactly the shape that you need so you don't need to do any subtractive manufacturing after the fact, which reduces the amount of energy and waste. For now, scientists have been able to show that plant material can be grown in a lab and its mechanical properties can be manipulated, but the study is still in its early phase. More research and experiments are required to be done before the technique can be developed further and employed for producing 3D furniture in the lab on a commercial scale. If it turns out to be successful, lab-grown wood could get us rid of deforestation once and for all. The next generation in transistor technology. What is Moore's Law? It's not really a law, but an observation by Gordon Moore of Intel back in the 1960s. The principle that the speed and capability of computers can be expected to double every two years as a result of increases in the number of transistors a microchip can contain. In terms of size of transistors, you can see that we're approaching the size of atoms, which is a fundamental barrier. We are now reaching the limits of the atomic size of a silicon atom. Intel, Samsung, and Taiwan Semiconductor are racing to achieve a generational leap in transistor technology. This next generation design is called gate or round, with new materials and redesigned manufacturing tools that can cost tens of millions each. The new gates accomplish one thing. They more tightly control the flow of electricity received by each transistor. Modern chips can have upwards of 30 billion transistors on a single device, and in some cases, tens of billions more. Chip companies must deliver substantially more computing horsepower every year to get to a version of the future that's been promised by the tech titans. Doing so requires some of the most complex, expensive manufacturing equipment on the planet and the development of even more creative ways to improve fundamental aspects of chip construction. 
That means making already atomic-sized features even smaller. This process, loosely described as Moore's Law, has kept the chip industry humming for more than half a century, but it's getting harder. Chip manufacturers improve high-volume production and performance with a combination of advanced tools such as extreme ultraviolet lithography machines and techniques that help squeeze more features onto each piece of silicon. Typically, manufacturers tout improvements to their techniques and technologies as process nodes that use smaller and smaller nanometer numbers. But another way to tackle the increasingly difficult problem is to further refine the fundamental building block of each chip, the transistor. Process nodes are just one measure of the progress. To that end, Intel and others have been advancing the design of the transistors, particularly in the way gates are designed. A gate is a tiny portion on each transistor that controls whether a transistor receives electricity, kind of like using a foot on a garden hose to turn water on and off in order to represent the zeros and ones that make up bits of data. But gates, like hoses, can be imperfect, and some of the electricity can slip through even with the most advanced designs. As you start making things smaller, you learn that there are some electrical characteristics with smaller elements that didn't work as well as they did when they were bigger. There's a rule of thumb that the smaller they get, the more current leakage they're going to get, which is more heat. Because chip makers know some electricity will evade the gate, it's becoming harder to continue to shrink features to achieve the power consumption and performance expected of new designs, and to build more efficient gates and transistors that generate less power, chip makers spend billions of dollars inventing the next better way to develop them. Gates all around base designs will have significantly better performance and efficiency than existing designs, potentially shifting the competitive position for many high-performance products. Surrounding all four sides of a part of the transistor with the material instead of the current three-sided design allows the gate to better regulate the flow of electricity. At the atomic scale chips operate at, having better control over the flow of electricity gives designers new options, most importantly making them even smaller. Smaller transistors allow designers to squeeze more of them onto a single chip, and adding more of these tiny features roughly translate to an improvement in the chip's ability to perform calculations. With better heat and power characteristics, that means you can turn up the juice. With all else being equal, you will have higher clock rates and you won't need exotic cooling for high-performance design, so that can cut costs also. The manufacturer that successfully deploys the next generation of gate technology in high-volume production will be able to manufacture chips with a leap in computing horsepower that's impossible with the current process technology. All three of the largest chip manufacturers are trying to figure out how to take advantage of this promising technology. This issue isn't producing one batch of chips with a new feature. It's producing hundreds of thousands or millions of chips at the scale at which the most advanced technologies are needed. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. 
Psychology of Getting Out from COVID Lockdown. Marty Winston joins me now. Marty, you know, one of the interesting things that I have... Uh, yeah, okay, I, it's not like I've been incarcerated, uh, you know, although I think we all, to some extent, after two years of COVID, we've we've got like this feeling that we've been cooped up inside of our houses and stuff like that. I went out recently and I took a hike. I get some fresh air and it was, okay, it, it, it was I, my body was kind of achy afterwards, but <laughs> but there was there was a very good feeling about getting out of the house and just kind of the the differences on this. And I know that we're who thought all, that would be who thought that would be nostalgic. Yeah, really. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I I know I know that a lot of people are experiencing you know depending on where you are in the country, some areas of the country, you know, COVID came along and. Eight weeks later, everybody was back out on the streets. And then other places like California, my wife and my wife, you know, she's on the other end of the spectrum. You know, they've you're locked down where we've got, you know, SWAT teams patrolling the streets to make sure you're staying at home and not giving COVID to anybody else. That didn't work out very well for California anyways. But what what would you say? And I want I want to I want to move beyond we normally stick with tech and tech related items, but this is almost this feels like a psychology issue. Well, there is. But tech also has a role in psychology. <laughs> okay, I mean, yeah. look, everybody's been indoors too long. It's cabin fever. It's, it's the feeling of being trapped. But it's also a little bit of getting used to your environment and thinking that indoors is normal. Mm-hmm, and yeah. you adapt. Everybody adapts. People adapt. But sometimes the adaptation is not the best ever. How many pandas have you saved in the last week? Any answer? Pandas? Well, that's a very... I I don't know. Okay. That's a very popular handset game that people with nothing to do, feeling lonely all by themselves, do as a distraction. When you're dealing with the depression of having been indoors too long, when you're dealing with the isolation... A lot of people turn to tech and sometimes it's going to the news sites and sometimes it's social media and sometimes it's those games and sometimes it's streaming stuff. But it means in every case, you've stopped dealing with real people. You know, you've got a very valid point there. You know, let's let's uh, let me just take a, a detour off of one of those items. The news things. I know a lot of people that that have have been sucked into the whole news cycle of COVID, 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 COVID. And they are afraid to venture anywhere because of COVID. They're it, it, germaphobes are up sure, to yeah. 32 million now. So, yeah, that is a factor. These stresses change people. Nobody has the preparation, the education, the training, the experience to know how to adapt entirely on their own, and guidance has not been manifest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, you know, th- there's look, we're dealing with good weather. We're mm-hmm. dealing with a mm-hmm. chance to go to that place that doesn't have a white ceiling. It's blue and it has clouds in it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. Outdoors has many, many thrilling temptations. If you want to be isolated, fine, go a different route. You know, yeah, yeah. Robert Frosted. I mean, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and miles to go before. I, no, wait, that's 
That's that's the <laughs> other guy. I can't remember his name. Emerson. Yes. All right, but go on. Yes. So you know, learning to get out. Yeah. Even if it's just a jaunt around the block and hurry back before anybody sees you. That's step one. Okay. You've you've got to break out of the habit of thinking that the walls and the door are the end of your universe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Breathe the air. Open the window. Do that stuff. Flesh faces, not yeah. screen faces. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hi, how are you? Hey, you don't have to say a lot. You don't have to be a brilliant conversationalist. You just have to be a human. I think a lot of people are struggling with conversation. I, I, I read something recently about the, just the, the, the getting back into the office where they're, yeah. they're struggling with the interactions because the it's all been electronic years. for two years. Yeah, right. And for the last two years, if you've been in media that don't have tonality, that don't have accents, that don't allow you to communicate beyond the words themselves, yeah, you, yeah. you've lost your ability. It's like learning how to talk all over again. And guys, you know, ladies, it's there's life out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't matter. You've been cooped up for two years and you gained 30 pounds. You'll get over it. <laughs> you've, you've been cooped up and you've forgotten how to cook or you've forgotten how to eat or you've forgotten that there's an alternative to have a box of food delivered to you. You'll get over it. Yeah, yeah. You know, the news is bad. Well, I got to tell you, I'm pretty old and the news has always been bad. Don't let that. <laughs> <laughs> news has been bad since uh, a certain guy went, that's the way it is. Uh, long before that. Yeah. Okay. Fair <laughs> enough. Yeah. You, you know, even before the British are coming. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Now, look, part of the attitude is breaking a bad habit. And so many of today's bad habits are hooked to the tech in your hand or on your table. The phone, the tablet, the computer, those represent a distorted window into reality it's not objective it's not subjective it's not much more than a synthesis of reality go outside watch all the tv shows you want inside but none of them are full real life go out be delighted be disappointed be involved be disinvolved it doesn't matter be yourself get out there learn to talk to flesh faces again this is benjamin rockwell and that's marty winston saying something i've said for a long time now Thank you, Ben, and thank you, Marty. The 46th annual Trenton Computer Festival was held Saturday, March the 19th of this year. There were over 50 talks on 10 concurrent tracks. All the sessions were recorded, and they are available and free for download at the following website, tcf-nj.org. And the main page of that website will direct you to the portal site. Public service announcements. Computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut tri-state region. Since most club meetings are now online, you are welcome to attend any of the online meetings. Just log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. The Westchester PC Users Group will have a presentation on uninterruptible power supplies Thursday, June the 2nd at 7 p.m. 
online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is wpcug.org. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey will meet Friday, June the 3rd. Meeting time is 8 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Jitsi, that's J-I-T-S-I, and their website is acgnj.org. The New York Amateur Computer Club will have a presentation on Update on Fighting Robocalls. Thursday, June the 9th, meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, June the 10th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is limac.org. The King's Byte Computer Club meets Tuesday, June the 14th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., and they meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant, 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. For more information, you can call 347-278-7320. And the Brookdale Computer Users Group meets Thursday, June the 23rd. Meeting time is 6.45 p.m., a virtual meeting via Zoom, and their website is bcug.com. If you have any meeting announcements relating to computing that you would like me to announce on your behalf, just send me an email at hank at pcradioshow.org. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. on prn.live, streaming on the Internet, and podcasts of the programs available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email addressed to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Joe King, Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy until we meet again, same time, same station, next week.